All right, well, if you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, will you open them to Daniel chapter 5? Daniel chapter 5, and the title of my message today, as you would probably expect, is The Writing on the Wall. And as you make your way there, let us begin in verse 1, and let's begin reading. Belshazzar king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. And while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, and iron, wood, and stone. The term writing on the wall is a term that I'm sure that all of you probably have used at one time or another. From its original conception, of course, found here in Daniel chapter 5, the term or the definition of that phrase has changed slightly. Today we use it as a warning. You should have seen it coming, kid. You should have seen the writing on the wall. You should have seen where this was leading to and what was going to come next. But here in our text, we find that the writing on the wall as we join Belshazzar, who is now a relative of King Nebuchadnezzar, though the word father is used there in our text, it is the Hebrew word ab, which means ancestor of. For in fact, after Nebuchadnezzar, he was succeeded by his son, who was then killed by his uh, Nebuchadnezzar's brother, uh, son-in-law, who then reigned for a little while, and then, of course, he was killed in battle. And then there were two quick successions after that, And the second of those was a man named Nabodas. And Nabodas is the father of Belshazzar. History tells us that Babylon was in a serious decline at this time. The Babylonians felt that they were invincible. That they had no weakness or vulnerability that could be exploited by their enemies. At this point, they have completely disregarded all of the warnings that God had given them time and time again. And also, they have disregarded the fact that God was going to bring in an empire to succeed him, that of the Medes and the Persians. And so as we gather with them in this party, and that's what they're doing, they're having a party Uh, they're just having a a rave, a blowout. They are just drinking it up, living it up there in Babylon. One commentator makes mention of the fact that for them to indulge themselves in this way, and if I may, I'd like to sum up the first four verses with three words, indulgence, indifference, and irreverence. These three words, I think, perfectly characterize everything that we read in the first four verses. The indulgence was due to the fact that they had a false sense of security, that they were safe, and all they were worried about was the pleasures of life. 
They weren't concerned about any other further need. They were just looking from one, for one pleasurable experience after another. And as he was enjoying this party, now there's language used here that's very interesting. When it says, the king drank wine in their presence, the, the phrase means more or less that he let himself go. He was enjoying it too. He was the first one with the lampshade on his head. He let his guard down, showing irreverence for his own position and for the people who were there, an indifference to the responsibility that he carried as king. And as he enjoyed this time, he became even further arrogant by requesting that the items that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of the one true God, be brought in as novelties for them to exploit. For them to continue drinking the libations in which they had, growing intoxicated in its consumption. And as we will see, as they are carrying on in the fashion, in the false sense of security in which they believe they had, God is watching. And out of nowhere, a hand begins to write on the wall. And we continue in verse 5. Now in the same hour, meaning at that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed. He was flush. He went white. And his thoughts troubled him, I bet. So that the joints of his hips were loosened, meaning he was about to collapse, and his knees knocked against each other. What a picture Daniel paints for us. Then the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, which means royalty, and have a chain of gold around his neck. And he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar great, was greatly troubled. His countenance changed. And his lords were astonished, amazed at what they're seeing, perplexed by it. And then the queen, most likely the queen mother, uh, because his wives are mentioned earlier, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. And the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy God uh, is in. And in the days of your father, that is ancestor again, Ab, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. Now, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, a knowledge and understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas 
were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Confronted by this writing, by this hand that appears out of nowhere, the writing undoubtedly was written in the language of Aramaic, which is read from right to left. But often, like in many languages, when written in this fashion, vowels were not contained within it, and they needed to be added by the one reading it. That could possibly explain why they were confused in what they were reading. It also could simply mean that they read the words, but the words in and of themselves required an interpretation for practical and proper application. And they couldn't offer that to the king. What's interesting to me is, again, from chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and now 5, we see the limitations of the world's wisdom when it comes to the affairs of God. One of the primary purposes for us studying this book is to remind ourselves that God is in control and in charge of all the affairs of men. And number two, that we as believers need simply be faithful to what God has asked us to do in times of trouble and in times of distress like they did in the time of Daniel. We need to be faithful in the light of what God has asked us to do. I believe that part of what we are seeing in our nation today is a collapse of confidence within people concerning the wisdom of this world. I think what's happening is that we have now exhausted the exhausted various elements of our world system from politics to our scientific community, our medical community, our economical community, and even in some part our religious communities. People are starting to see that there is truly no hope to be found in any of these man-made institutions. Even though government was initiated by God, the corruption has overwhelmed God's original intent. And as a result, we see that as corruption continues in in our country and in our world, people become less and less and less confident in their ability to provide a better tomorrow. I think this is a wake-up call for all believers in Jesus Christ to once again put our eyes back on God. Our nation is not going to change based on the ruling power that is in office at that particular time. What's going to change is men and women submitting themselves to God and to His rule and authority. The founding fathers of our nation clearly drew their ideas for government from the Scriptures. And if those are to be abandoned, our nation will falter in its wake. We need to understand and return to God if we want God to heal our land. And we can't expect others to do it before we ourselves do it. I believe these last two years has been a wake-up call for us who are Christians to no longer remain complacent, apathetic, no longer feel comfortable in our carnality, but to be the men and women God has called us to be, in the grace of God, in the power of His Spirit, that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to draw from His infallible Word, the wisdom that He has for us, 
asking for further wisdom to be given to us that the world cannot supply to us and knowing that He will give it to us in liberty, that He will give it to us freely. Once again, Belshazzar now in his arrogance and his indulgence and his irreverence and his indifference, his calling upon his wise men, his wise men cannot give him the answer. The astrologers couldn't look to the sky. The soothsayers couldn't look into the spiritual world. The Chaldeans, which were the culmination of the wisdom of the world at that time, that was their responsibility in compiling all of the wisdom in the various areas in which the Babylonians conquered. In all three occasions, none were able to provide the answer. And I believe that's where we are today. The world doesn't have the answer for us going forward, only the scriptures do. And we need to return to the Lord. So Daniel is called upon. Now many scholars believe that 20 years has passed before chapters 4 to chapter 5. And if that is the case in the succession of the timeline, Daniel is probably close to 80 years old. Now think about it. He was drawn into Babylon, taken in captivity when he was in his teens. Most likely around 15, he's now 80. He has a world of experience. He has lifelong experience. And yet, he tempers that lifelong experience with the wisdom of God. Today, in our culture, we define truth not based upon absolutes given, but based upon our own personal experiences. And because of this, because each individual's experience is different, we therefore have difficulty ever coming to a consensus on what truth actually is. And therefore, we are all doing what's right in our own eyes, aren't we? We're we're trying to make the best of it. We don't know who we can trust, But that lack of trust has left a vacuum within us that can only be filled by our own personal experiences. In my philosophy class that I taught earlier this year, I used this example. For example, say you're looking to purchase a new car. And everyone tells you, and everything that you read, you realize that Toyota is a very reliable brand of car to purchase. And no, they did not sponsor this message. Now, you therefore proceed to purchase a Toyota. And you, and you pick one out, you drive it off the lot, and within a short period of time, the car begins to fail you. Something goes wrong in the engine or in the electrical system or in the computer, etc. And you find yourself in the shop with it all the time. Now, your, your wisdom, based on your experiences, would tell you that Toyotas are a bad choice. But all of the relevant data shows you differently. See, that is the individual personal experience overwhelming the data evidence that we have supporting that the majority of the cars are better than most. But because of your personal experience, you most likely would not recommend a Toyota to your friends. Now, you can judge your opinion or your experience with the Toyota individually and come to that conclusion, but does that conclusion automatically reflect the truth? And the answer is no. This is what we have to be very careful of. 
So once again, we are confronted with the limitation of man's wisdom and now the invitation for God's wisdom. And I think that's where we are at in our culture. And I think this is what's unsettled many in our nation today. But let's continue. Because as we continued now, we see Daniel coming to the scene. But before we leave, let me say this. It would be easy to ascertain that over the last 20 years, wickedness got its way. Between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, it would be easy to say that wickedness continued in Babylon and went unchecked. But the Bible tells us that a day of reckoning is coming and that God will hold the uh, wicked accountable. Notice with me in the Psalms. It should be on the screen behind you. Psalm 10, verses 3 through 7. For the wicked boasts in his, of, of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. Notice the characteristics li- listed here. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is, is none of his thoughts, is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemy, he sneers at them. His heart says, I shall not be moved. I shall never be an adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. And under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. When Job was confronted by his friends in Job 24 through 7, notice what his friends said to him. Do you not know this of old? Since man was placed on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. uh, Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens, and his head reaches to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own refuge, his own waste. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? God sees what's going on. He knows what's going on. He sees the corruption. It is open and uh, naked before him, and he will hold people accountable. In Revelation chapter 20, as individuals stand before the great white throne of judgment, individuals are confronted by books that are opened. And within them is everything they've ever said or done or thought. And then they will have to give an account before God. And apart from Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. They are guilty before God and will suffer the weight of their guilt before God for all eternity. It's only when we have one who is our advocate stepping before us and saying, though he may be guilty before you, God the Father, he is one of mine. As Jesus has become our propitiation, the payment for our sins. And God then looks through Jesus and sees us as a finished work in him and allows us into eternity in heaven forever. But as Daniel is now being called to the feast, in verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is the one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you and that the Spirit of God is in you. 
and that light and understanding are excellent wisdom and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. That means to untie riddles, untie knots. That's what that means in the Hebrew. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall become the third ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel answered, I love this, and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Just keep them. I don't want them. And give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him its interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of this, the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart, this is Nebuchadnezzar now, when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up, that is prideful and arrogant, and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was disposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed with him uh, grass. They fed him with grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the God Most High ruled in the kingdom of men, and appointed over it whomever he chooses. When Daniel is brought in, Belshazzar gives him the motivation or the the incentive to give the reading and interpretation by becoming someone of power in the kingdom. Some wealth, a position of prominence, of royalty. But Daniel knew that this was going to be very short-lived if he were to accept it. And so Daniel refused it. He wasn't going to do it for mere material or positional gain. He was going to do it because it was the right thing to do. And notice that the role that Daniel played then is the role that I believe God wants us to play today in our time. God wants you and I to be faithful to Him at this moment. Not not to be persuaded by the things of this world. Not to be lured away by the material blessings that the world may have to offer or the hope of recognition, or the avoidance of being canceled. God wants us to remain faithful to Him at this moment. Because only in His Word and through us 
knowing His Word can light and understanding come into this world, can it? We need to be that beacon of light. We need to be that hope. Not that it's derived in and of ourselves. We are a mere reflection of the work in which God is doing in our lives. But this is what God's calling us to today. We are to be here to give answers to the world who cannot find answers within the world. Because there's a lot more to this world than this world is telling you there is. There is a God in heaven. As hard as we try to wash Him out of the consciousness of man, He still reigns supreme from heaven. It's interesting because we've taken a tactic that the Greeks took. In Greek mythology, if you read of Greek mythology, of course the gods Zeus, is Zeus and so on, you realize that after the succession of the, the titans, the gods came into power, but their existence dependent, was dependent on the belief of the people. The only way they could exist and reign in the position in which they did is if people believed in them. Today we do the same to Santa Claus, don't we? Well, if you don't believe, you're not going to get anything. So the Greek people, as their belief in their gods began to wane, it was known that those gods would then cease to exist. Now, we might like to think that is true with the one true God. We might like to suppress our knowledge of Him in unrighteousness, as Romans chapter 1 demonstrates. We might like to wash away from our public existence all acknowledgement of Him in hopes that He just simply vanishes away. Oh, I cannot tell you how untrue that actually is. Though the gods of Babylon, the gods of the Medes and the Persians, the gods of the Greeks, the gods of the Romans have all expired, the one true God is still reigning from heaven today and no one and nothing is going to dethrone him. And so we need to understand that and be encouraged by that. His existence is not dependent on our belief in Him, like the Greek gods. And Daniel wants them to know this clearly. They want, he wants to, uh, Belshazzar to understand that when your father, your grandfather actually, Nebuchadnezzar, prided himself, God humbled him. And he realized his mistake, repented of his mistake, and God returned the kingdom to him. But you, Belshazzar, you have no interest in humbling yourself before the one true God. And therefore, you shall be brought down this very day. Verse 22. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought you the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, of wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God in whom holds your breath in his hand, notice that, and owns all of your ways, you have not glorified then the fingers of the hand were sent from him 
And this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Many, many tekel usarsian. And this is its interpretation. Each word, many, God has numbered your kingdom. And it is finished. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, or Upsaren, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And so the interpretation is given. You've been numbered, your time is up. You've been weighed, you've been judged, and you've been found wanting. You're guilty. And now, as a punishment of your guilt, your kingdom will be removed from you and given, divided to the Medes and to the Persians. This banquet hall became a courtroom. And in this moment of celebration, God changed this uh, celebration into a hearing. And God intervened. Now, we will notice in just a moment that the Medes and the Persians were right outside the city walls. The walls were about 80 feet thick. And they were very high. Most thought they were impregnable. The Babylonians had stored about 20 years worth of food within their uh, city to sustain them under any siege. But they had a vulnerability, and that was that the river Euphrates flowed diagonally through the city. But it was barred by bronze gates. And what they did, the Medes and the Persians tunneled under it, diverted the water, and then went underneath these gates and stormed the city. The banquet room had become the courtroom. This week we saw something in the United States of America that I don't think we should quickly forget. In the Kyle Rittenhouse trial up in Kenosha, there were two courts that were taking place. One was in the courtroom where a jury of 12 weighed the evidence that was presented before them and the arguments that were given for each side. But there was another court that was in session. It was the court of public opinion. And this court was being given a narrative and a context in which they believed all people should view this young man through. From the President of the United States to the mainstream media. And when it didn't go their way, they gave one reason after another, and you can, you can guess the reason that they gave right from the beginning. He was racist. It's incredible to me how much our mainstream media has lied to us in the last 20 months. Can we finally agree that it's time to turn off the mainstream media and look for our news sources elsewhere? When the jury of 12 was given all the evidence, they found that, of course, as you know, Kyle Rittenhouse acted in self-defense. 
Now, you can debate if he should have been there or not. And you can uh, ask you the questions if, you know, he should have ever put himself in harm's way to begin with. And that, those are legitimate conversations. But when the jury saw the evidence, they acquitted him on all accounts. But our mainstream media, who wanted to contextualize and paint you a character of what he was and what he had done to prove him guilty, they then had the audacity to begin to fuel riot, you know, uh, become insinuary and began to inflame the situation in hopes of people again, once again, rioting in protest because of it. This is very, very dangerous. This is, to me, the parallel to the Romans bringing Christians in to the Colosseum and everybody chanting and waiting for their destructions to be eaten by the lions, etc. The mob, the public opinion. I am so grateful that we had a glimpse of the rule of law still actively involved in our nation's fabric. Now, why do I say this? I say to you that every institution of America is under direct attack today. Every single one. And enough's enough. We need to understand that if we rule by mob rule, the moment the mob turns against you is the moment that you are then guilty before all. We cannot allow ourselves to fall into that pit of mob rule, whoever that mob is. We, not, we need to allow our justice system to work as it is. Ultimately, whatever narrative this world creates about the guilt or innocent of an individual before God, ultimately God will see that individual perfectly and be able to judge righteously. He is un- incorruptible. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be persuaded. But he sees things as they truly are. And as a result, we need to rest in that. Now, each and every one of us are guilty before God because of the sin within our life. Every one of us. And the only hope that we have is for the fact that God has sent a Savior to save us. And that if we would place our faith and trust in Him, we will be given new life, cleansed of unrighteousness and robed with His righteousness to stand before God the Father as we need to. That's Christianity. God is a God of love and grace, but He's also a God of holiness and righteousness. And though we may see the corruption of our judicial system here on this earth, God will never be corrupted by any of the effects of sin upon this earth. And He will judge righteously. I was encouraged that those 12 jurors had the courage to stand up and do what was right. Do you think they wanted to be in that position? I wouldn't have been. I, that judge, I wouldn't want, it to be, wouldn't want to be him. The jury bus was followed home, you know, followed by a reporter from MSNBC. It was unbelievable. But I see cracks in what's happening now. And it's time for us now to stand up and say enough's enough. Politely, gently, in love, in grace. I am not advocating violence in any way, shape, or form. 
but we have to say enough. Why? Because we have children. And because we hope to, they have children one day and be able to enjoy our nation. Is our nation perfect? Absolutely not. Is there room for improvement? A lot of improvement. But it's not going to be found in our woke culture today. It's only going to be found in God's truth. And so Belshazzar was now in the moment in verse 30 and 31. That very night... Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The Bible tells us that tomorrow is promised to no one. We don't know when our time is up. And I don't mean to frighten anyone by saying that, but we know that to be a fact biblically. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Today is the day to come to Jesus Christ. I wish I could explain to you how wonderful that is. But unfortunately, it would be like me trying to explain the color yellow to someone who's blind. God needs to open your eyes. God needs to uh, show you His glory and allow you to experience the new creation in which He creates within you. God's always there for you. Jesus is always there for you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He'll never abandon you. He's always there for you. And I encourage you today that if you haven't committed your life to Jesus Christ, have we not seen that this world doesn't have the answers that we are personally, intimately looking for any longer? They can only be found in the one who created us, our God. God told, that these, told us that these people would be held accountable for defiling the elements of his temple. In Jeremiah 50, 28, Jeremiah writes, The voice of those who flee and escape from the land of Babylon declares in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of his temple. In Jeremiah 51, he goes on to say, Make the arrows bright, gather the shields. The Lord has raised up the spirit of the king of the Medes, for his plan is against Babylon to destroy it, because it is his, in his vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. I am always optimistic about the future. It's because as we look forward in the Bible to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, we are confronted with another Babylon. Mystery Babylon, the Bible says. The world system that positions itself and rebels against all that is of God, will be held accountable. And after that accountability, Jesus Christ in Revelation 19 returns physically to this earth. And a new righteousness will be discovered and gained. Until that time, as we wait upon His return, let you and I be uh, individuals seeking to live peaceably with all who are around us. Let us be the ones in whom people can approach and find light. That means knowledge and understanding in the things of God. Let us be approachable to those in the world who are looking for answers beyond what the mainstream media is giving them. And they are now seeing is so deficient in its 
in its uh, entirety itself. You and I have answers that they don't have. You and I have the Word of God, and we're equipped with the Spirit of God, and we are one of His. Let us seek to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and let us love our neighbor as ourself as we do so. But let us understand that God is there, and nothing that man will do will ever change that. I like to close with these words from Dr. Warren Worsby. The world has always had its great cities, its mighty empires, and its powerful dictators. But the Most High God still reigns in heaven and on the earth and accomplishes His purposes. No nation, leader, or individual citizen can long resist Almighty God and win the battle.